0: This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the very niche and kind of geeky details of modern warfare with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to Emmanuel Frudenfall. He's the only journalist to cover the anglophone conflict in East Cameroon on the ground. So he's the first person to actually embed with the militias fighting there in a conflict that most people have probably never heard about. It's receiving very little attention in the media. Despite this, the conflict is escalating quite rapidly. There are a lot of deaths on both sides. So Emmanuel is going to explain why these English-speaking rebels in Cameroon are fighting the French-speaking state forces. If you want more Popular Front content, including bonus episodes, videos, all sorts, go to patreon.com popularfront. This episode is sponsored by defensepost.com. First of all, can you explain what is the Ambazonian conflict going on in Cameroon right now?
1: Um, so the Ambazonian conflict in Cameroon is um, uh, basically the Anglophone minority for a long time has been asking to, uh, to have greater autonomy and has felt discriminated against and uh, things accelerated in last august when the government cracked down protest and and s- threw h- hundreds of people in jail and killed a few dozens uh, that's when a bunch of uh, uh, armed groups came up and and started um, killing security uh, forces and then the government retaliated and things aspired out of control.
0: It's a little bit more than just English-speaking Cameroonians fighting French-speaking Cameroonians, right? There's a lot more to it than that. Yeah,
1: so it's totally, um, is that something maybe a misconception a lot of people have is that it's French-speaking versus English-speaking Cameroonians, but that's really not the situation right now is uh, it's, it's state forces versus uh, an Anglophone minority. That is um, basically reclaiming or claiming independence for uh, two anglophone, pre- pre- predominantly anglophone regions. There, there is some francophone living in those regions, and just like there's anglophones living in the in the francophone regions. So the the history of the anglophone conflicts dates back to uh, uh, 1916, if you will, when Cameroon was a German colony and. Germany lost uh, lost Cameroon to well, Cameroon was put as a protectorate by the UN and split between uh, France and uh, the UK. So part of it was administered uh, by the UK via its its colony Nigeria, and part of it was administered by France via its, uh, via Cameroon, the rest of Cameroon really, and so. What happened is, is that part that was administered by French started speaking French, um, and the part that was administered by the English started speaking English. That said, there's 240 languages today in Cameroon. So it's a extremely, you know, diverse country in terms of, of, of linguistics. Uh, it's probably, I think it's the number two after uh, Papua New Guinea or something like that in terms of, diversity or number of languages per per inhabitant basically the likelihood of of your neighbor speaking in different language uh, And most people will speak, you know four languages including the official languages uh, that are French and English and uh, Today Cameroon is a bilingual country because in 19 in the 1960s uh, Nigeria and and Cameroon so the French Cameroon got their independence and the anglophone part uh, that was then attached to Nigeria had to choose um, whether they wanted to join French Cameroon or whether they wanted to join the uh, English-speaking uh, Nigeria. And so part of it went to Nigeria, and what is today, today the north and southwest region of Cameroon went with Cameroon and remained anglophone. They joined Cameroon as a federation, meaning that they could keep their language uh, became a second official language and and government communication have to be in the two languages. And they also kept their legal system and so on. So the the teaching, the education and so on is supposed to be also bilingual. Fast forward to the 80s, uh, or like until the 80s, a lot of the Anglophone uh, felt like the Francophone majority government was trying to impose uh, uh, French on them by... Uh, you know, changing uh, education curriculum by sending French uh, teachers, all kinds of things. And so they kind of rebelled against it in the 1980s. And since then, this this discontentment has, has grown. And then fast forward again to 1916, where on 1st of October, which was the uh, birthday or the anniversary of the uh, reunification of the two Cameroon, There were protests in the Anglophone Cameroon and those protests were mostly led by the teachers and the lawyers. The teachers, because they felt like you had teachers, Francophone teachers coming and teaching in bad English or even teaching in French. And the lawyers, because for similar reasons, you know, judges, uh, we didn't understand common law. Uh, and didn't speak uh, English very well would come and then force people to speak French in the court and so on. So they felt like they were subjugated. Overall, the population also felt that because uh, a lot of the um, uh, administration, a lot of the officials and the armies that were in, in uh, Anglophone Cameron were, were from France, but also because it's symbolic of a, of a state that is an authoritarian state. And, and that language obviously was different to theirs. Uh, on top of that, there's issues of um, neglect and, you know, lack of development when a lot of anglophones feel like they're contributing a lot uh, of income to the state through, through uh, oil and timber and so on, and not really seeing much development. Uh, in terms of roads, hospitals and schools and, and things like that. So there was a lot of discontent and that discontent kept rising. At that time, there was also the government uh, during those protests, you know, arrested a bunch of people. Um, I think it's 20 people were killed, something like that. And that was in the 80s still, right? No, so that's in 2016. So that's uh, two years ago. Oh, so this is recently now. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sorry, I fast forwarded, but maybe that was a bit too fast. <laughs> so yeah, no, that was in 2016. And so, uh, and and there were like images of, you know, uh, I think that was in the 2016 protest where there were images of army forcing students to roll in the mud. Uh, it's just to humiliate and basically, you know, mis- uh,
0: you know, roughing up lawyers and so on. Yeah, you've got, you got like the the powerful force that they don't even relate to anyway coming into their areas and completely humiliating them, right? I mean, I imagine that kind of kick-started a lot of this recent conflict.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so wh- wh- when Singers really got started was in... 2017, October 2017, so same thing, you know, the anniversary of the reunification of the, uh, of, or the Federation of, of Anglophone and Francophone Cameroon. And at that time, the government ha- arrested hundreds of people. I mean, you'd, you know, they just go and, like, just arrest all the young men, basically. And also killed uh, a whole bunch of people. I can't remember the numbers, but, like, several dozens. And... A lot of, there were rumors that there there were a lot more people uh, killed than than those that were accounted for. And so then uh, I think this radicalized most of the Francophone population. They saw like, okay, this is not respecting us. And when we protest, we get killed and and, um, uh, arrested arbitrarily. And so armed groups were formed. Uh, by what had been like a kind of fringe part of of that movement, the most extreme, if you want, part. Uh, And that became mainstream. So a whole bunch of armed groups started. Um, The political organizations that were asking for secession or independence kind of uh, grew stronger. And now there's about half a dozen armed groups uh, operating in in, the... In Anglophone Cameroon, and meanwhile, the state also ramped up and burnt at least twenty villages, according to a Human Rights Watch report, and also killed, uh, you know, dozens of of, um, of people. I mean, I've interviewed refugees, and the story, and displaced people, and the story is always like the army came, uh, they, you know, either shot in the air or we run before they did anything and then uh they killed like young young men from 12 to you know 50 years old
0: let's talk about that because you're pretty much the only western journalist at least who's managed to embed with these, these militant Anglophone-speaking groups in Cameroon. What was that like? So, uh, um, so there's been no other journalist
1: so far, uh, Western or not. There's one other journalist who's managed to go in, in the Anglophone area, but it's very hard to access because the government doesn't allow any journalist access uh, to the area, you know, officially. And so the only way to go there is either to embed with the army and they're not necessarily very open or or to embed with the armed group so that's that's what I did and the way it was like is you know what was the main thing I learned there is this main thing that surprised me was that that group was actually composed mostly of uh, former farmers or you know people who had some some education but definitely weren't soldiers so that, that group was called the Mbazonia Defense Forces and it's probably one of the main groups Operating in, in Anglophone
0: Cameroon, so, so Amazonia is basically the region that the the Anglophone Cameroon see as theirs, right?
1: So that's a the name, uh, you know, that's a self declared name of their of their country, um, yeah, and and this comes from uh, you know the Embas Bay, uh, which which is in that. Um, in that region and and i think it was basically um someone came up with that name actually not so long ago i think it was in the 80s if i remember correctly and so they they really took it up like uh, yeah now for their new country
0: what does it mean it's it's uh it
1: doesn't mean anything apart from you know being derived from 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 that um bay
0: Oh, all right. So, oh, right. okay, so like the Ambos Bay.
1: Yeah, which is actually kind of interesting in some ways. Uh, I hadn't thought about it before, but uh, Cameroon is, is, uh, comes from uh, the Portuguese Camaroes, it, and it was given to that country. Well, the name came for that country when, um, when Portuguese ships arrived. I think it was in the 1600s, uh, if I remember correctly, or something like that. Uh, and uh, found a lot of um, uh, shrimps, Camaroes, in in the bay there. And so they they called it. uh, So that's where the name Cameron comes from.
0: Okay. And what was it like when you were with these groups? I mean, they're doing these attacks quite frequently now, right? They're attacking the the military there. They've killed quite a few soldiers. And of course, you know, lost a fair amount of their own. Um, How well organized were they?
1: So... So, you know what I was saying? These are former farmers and, you know, um, former, um, uh, you know, people with all kinds of jobs who are not, not military jobs. Uh, so obviously not really e- effective yet, not as effective as a professional armies. They also don't have uh, proper guns. They use hunting rifles. although some other sections of... Uh, the Ambazona Defense Forces that I haven't embedded with. They have machine guns and seem to be a, a lot more um, uh, organized militarily. Um, but yeah, you know, they're, they're, m- most of the people who were there were basically um, faced with a choice. Most of the people who were there had to leave their village after the army attacked them. That's the majority of them not all of them and the army often either burnt the villages or set up a camp there or but most of them uh, fearing to return there also some of them were involved with the uh, secessionist movement and so they know that okay the village uh, administration around the village or the village chief uh, know that they know what that if they come back they'll get arrested. So basically, they have a choice. They can either go and be refugees or, or displaced people in Nigeria or somewhere in the bush in Cameroon, or take up arms and and try and get a new country. So so it's uh, really driven by wanting the new country, but also just by desperation. They just don't have many other options.
0: And what is the military or the government's motivation for going in? And, you know, burning the whole place down, beating up people, shooting people dead. Because, you know, I've seen these um, these videos and you've you've done a lot of work on this. And it does seem that the government is going in very heavy-handed. Why don't they kind of try and work things out?
1: Yes, yeah, so the government so far has uh, seen these uh, armed groups as terrorists and not as a group that they could negotiate with. But they've also... Uh, laid quite a lot of uh, uh, violence on the civilian populations that really had nothing to do with those groups because they see, I think, I guess, because the military maybe see uh, all the Anglophone population as um, as potential uh, fighters. I'm not really sure what the strategy there is. It, so far, it seems like this has probably created more of a problem, more fighters, fighting against the the army so uh, in terms of why they're taking this strategy i really i don't i don't really know i thought maybe like they thought, like extreme violence would
0: mean that these guys just give up but it hasn't worked i think a lot of it as well i think you get you get these kind of leaders where they want to be the strong man, you know, and it's like, right, you want to rebel, we'll go in and we'll just shut it down straight away. You know what I mean? They try and come in very heavy handed, which, like you just said, it has the opposite effect because a lot of young men will just go, okay, you know, you're going to come and do this. We'll join, uh, you know, a militia and we'll fight back. It seems to be like they're creating their own problem in a way, you know, or at least making it worse.
1: Yeah, they're definitely making it worse, it seems. uh They've also burnt, for example, motorbikes and a lot of the young people in, in town and sm- like smaller or bigger towns. That's pretty much the only job a lot of them have because there's a massive issue with uh, youth in, in Cameroon. There's just no employment for them. So then they, for some reason, they burnt motorbikes or allegedly burnt motorbikes. And so that meant that from one day to the other, this guy just couldn't contribute to his family's um, income. And, you know, I mean, the, <laughs> you you just do that pretty much anywhere. You, if you piss off young people, you know they're they're not going to
0: just lay down and, and take it. Absolutely. There's only so much a person will take before they just say, right, this is enough. I, I think that gets lost a lot of the time in translation when, you know, reporting on militant groups. It's like these kids didn't start off like this they weren't born partisans you know what I mean it's it's often unfortunately a long series of events that pushes them towards it you know yeah exactly I mean
1: this in this case I think it's just the one event to be honest yeah uh, like having their village burnt or and maybe having one of their brothers or family members being killed by the army I don't think it took a lot for them to to uh, take up arms it's just because it just suddenly I had no other
0: choice and how different is the anglophone speaking community from the french speaking community it depends who you ask to be honest
1: um there is like I said there's 240 languages in Cameroon so that's as many cultures uh songs uh, villages, oh well, like obviously more villages than than languages, but so so that's one way you could see it, and I don't know if there is uh, a really massive difference in terms of that kind of culture between the francophones and the anglophones. So I haven't really looked into it. The anglophones will say that, uh, or at least uh, one of the the anglophone. Um, sorry, the leader of the political wing of the Mbazonian defense forces, uh, Ayaba Cho, uh, he he was telling me that it's not made up, that kind of identity, and it's not colonial. There are actually uh, uh, physical boundaries that define the territory of Ambazonia and that also might create some culture. This is uh, uh, another... Um, uh, well um, the researcher Achille Mbembe uh, wrote an editorial in, in Le Monde uh, saying that it's kind of sad in some ways that um, this struggle gets defined in terms of the colonial force that was occupying whichever part of the country so these are the two ways of looking at it another way also to see see how, how, why, why they form a group of anglophones, I think is because the state has been a majority francophone and this in the whole of Cameroon has been a state that has oppressed its people and, and preyed on people, you know, in terms of resources, hasn't been a, a state that has helped people in, by and large. Um, you know, there's very few roads in the whole of Cameroon. You go in the east, it's the same thing. And, and just resources are being plundered and very little actually comes back. Locally, you get like the schools are just pitiful and the roads often people have to, uh, either build them themselves or just hope that some mining company or some logging company is gonna show up and build a road that will for sure, like, a, or clear a road that will fall into disrepair very soon after the company is, uh, has left. And so, because the state has been mostly f- francophone, when, when, when you get subjugated, when you get, uh, hassled by officials that are speaking the same language as you, you don't see it, you see it as a state, but you don't see it as another culture or as a different people. But when those official on top of, you know, hassling you also speak a different language and purposefully don't speak English, uh, I think that, that makes you maybe see that, um,
0: Opposition in in a, in a linguistic uh, way. It creates like just another reason for you all to be divided. You know, it's it's, it's this, it's this, and there's just another reason. Um, aren't there, I think you said before, aren't there elections coming up soon in Cameroon? Yeah, there's elections
1: coming on the 7th of October, so six days after the anniversary of the uh, Federation of Cameroon. And those elections, is, I think, seven candidates, if I remember correctly, including the incumbent president, Paul Bia who's actually in Geneva right now. Yeah, he's, he's been in charge forever, right? Uh, for 36 years, I believe. He's 85 now. Um, he... He spends quite a lot of time in, in Geneva. He's actually in Geneva right now it's a, uh, most likely as the Intercontinental Hotel, the four five star hotel, where he rents entire floors and comes with a uh, with a whole, you know, a whole bunch of people, ministers, uh, helpers, um, hairdressers for his wife, uh, and and so on. Uh, we actually calculated how much time he spent abroad in uh, in one article we did. And, and how much? Well, over the, since '82, it was uh, four and a half years on what the local papers or the local government papers uh, call court um, séjour uh, privé or like short, pri- uh, brief private trips abroad or brief private trips to Europe. Um, and so those, those brief private trips, this was sometimes like a hundred, over a hundred days in a year. So a third of the year are spent on private
0: trips, which... Sounds a lot like a holiday. Yeah, it does sound a lot like a holiday. I mean, could you imagine being one of these these guys in the Amazonian areas, their roads aren't working, the police and the, the military are coming in and wrecking their villages. Meanwhile... The government is here, there and everywhere abroad spending all this money on five-star hotels. I mean, it doesn't take a genius to realize that that is going to cause some problems, you know?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, yeah. And, and there was a whole bunch of other issues with the lifestyle of, of the rulers. I mean, there's been uh, one incident, for example, where the daughter of the president uh, was living somewhere in the U.S., uh, complained on Instagram because uh, a taxi driver had been rude to her and hadn't just believed that she did have the $400 for the ride home. And she saw that like, people would get outraged by the racism. And she was saying, like, oh, but I always take this $400 ride. You know, I do it almost every day. And and <laughs> most Cameroonians were actually less shocked by the uh, supposed racism than by the fact that their president's daughter is uh taking close to the you know um annual uh averaging um in rides every
0: every few days it's uh, yeah that that's absolutely disgusting i mean no wonder young lads are going like right we'll take up arms you know what i mean when the government's daughter is taking kind of taxi journeys that would be their wages that's insane so so what was it like when you were with these groups because I know you went to not the front line because it's kind of a guerrilla war but you went on an active operation with these guys maybe you can tell me about that
1: uh yeah so so the um, operation was uh supposed to be on the day I arrived and then was delayed because they were uh waiting for bullets to be delivered and on the last day, they said, Oh, okay, we're going today. And so I was like, Okay, I'll follow you. They're like, Oh, okay, okay. And, uh, I asked how far we would be from, from the front line. And they said, Oh, about, you know, from the place they're going to attack. Uh, and they said about an hour. And when we actually ended up there, we were, uh, just 15 minutes walk from, uh, from, from the, where the army was. And so, uh, it was quite a scary night because I was always thinking like someone's going to get tipped off because so many people knew about where we were and could have uh, potentially tipped off the army or at least a bunch of people knew. And so that didn't happen luckily. After this stressful night, uh, you know, morning came and people were still loitering about. And I thought, well, um, how, why are you not there? And basically what had happened is, on the way they split the ammunition, and then one of the guys who had quite a, a chunk of them ended up not making it to the camp and for a while they were wondering what happened to this guy you know did he get lost and so on and afterwards with uh, told I actually probably just decided to steal the bullets
0: so what did he do with them what he went off and sold them
1: I am not in touch with him <laughs> so <laughs> I have no idea where they went yeah but I'm assuming he 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 sold them, or yeah, I don't know what you do with like a
0: few hundred bullets. I mean, it's funny because you know, like you said, they are kind of disorganized and it, you know whatever. But at the same time, they are causing quite a lot of problems, right, for the government down there. I was reading the other day about the amount of deaths, and it was quite high. Yeah, so they reckon
1: the the uh, leader reckons there's about they killed about 150 uh, security forces. Uh, yeah, and there's quite a lot of disruption in terms of the elections. Obviously, they don't want the elections to happen uh, in, in the Anglophone Cameroon. And the government, as uh, recently the guy who was supposed to, who the, the person in charge of organizing the election said that what they're likely to do is to disloc- dis, uh, dislocate some of the election booths into outside this area, which means obviously a lot of people from those areas who would want to vote are not going to be able to vote next to their houses. Another thing that these groups have been accused of doing is uh, forcefully shutting down schools. They did organize both parts of schools in 2017 uh, as, a, you know, as a symbol of the state, as a symbol of these schools are not teaching our kids in English. But uh, human rights groups... Have accused them of burning schools and uh, targeting uh, principals or teachers who wanted to keep on teaching the kids. And they, at least the uh, Ambazonia Defense Forces, deny that th- that this was the case, and they say, say that you know it's it's just some people we say they're from the um, um, separatist armed group. So at least their hierarchy distances themselves from from those actions, and we know we did it. I mean, I, yeah. But according to um, human rights groups, I was uh, separatist. And the other thing that makes it a bit less funny is, of course, these guys are fighting against a very well-trained army that's getting you know, support, helicopters, weapons, and so on from the US. Uh, some sections have been trained by uh,
0: ex-militaries um, from Israel. They also get support from France. That's because they're fighting... Boko Haram as well right near the north yeah exactly so they're fighting Boko Haram in the north and so that's
1: how they get uh, that uh, kind of military support but even in the north uh, the military or even more so in fact in the north the military has been accused of uh, massive human rights violation
0: yeah there's that there's that awful video right where they shoot the toddler and then shoot the women
1: exactly so so they've and that's not an isolated case. That's uh, cases that have happened in around 2014, 2015. And there's a whole bunch of other cases. These are uh, just the ones that were caught by the army, by the way, by the soldiers themselves showing off on video. But there's, it's been a, a, a modus operandi of, of these groups, of the army, to, to, uh, to kill people for no, no well, with
0: who the accused of being Boko Haram. Man, that, that video is, I mean, I, I've seen some shit, but that video is, I think, the worst thing I think I've ever seen, you know, that's it's, it's even worse than ISIS stuff, because it's just a baby, you know, like a baby on the mother's back, it's, it's so bad, and it's like, if they're the kind of soldiers that are going into the Amazonian areas, it's no wonder that... You know this. You know the place is getting burnt down and all this kind of stuff. Yeah,
1: Zavidio I mean, was very bad, and there's a bunch of other videos. Uh, I mean, this one is especially bad. If you understand the French, they like they say, "Oh, sorry, little girl, we have to do this." You know, wear this on your head and and so on. It's it's very kind of. It, it does look like they actually really don't care about what they're doing. They're doing it. It it look, it does look like it's totally routine for them to to go and kill.
0: Yeah, it's like it's like they're having a laugh. Like the way they approach it it's not even like look we we're, we're tough guys we're gonna kill a kid and a mother like they're not even showing off they're just just it just looks like ah they're just doing it it's, it's so bad man it really it really bad video
1: and there's a bunch of uh, there's some other videos that um, have come up since this one and there's a bunch of other ones as well and there's some some others that are gonna come out as well Um that we got and and are looking into. It was
0: great work trying to find these people.
1: Yeah, well, well, the last video, actually this one, the government first denied that this was in Cameroon and a bunch of people on Facebook were saying that it's in Mali, which is kind of funny. When when you're from Cameroon or where you've been in Cameroon you can hear the accent of these guys and you know it's a Cameroonian accent. And, and so the, the government was dismissing this as being probably from Mali or from some other country and saying that this can't be soldiers for, for a bunch of uh, reasons that really don't stand out, uh, don't stand out much to scrutiny. And after saying that this was fake news, they recently arrested seven people in you know, linked to this video, including uh, uh, several people whose names had been circulated online as being the authors of those killings.
0: Uh, so the government kind of backtracked on, on their initial claims. And with, with a lot of conflicts in Africa, they spill out of the countries they're in quite a lot, and you know cause trouble elsewhere. For example, Congo is is not particularly bad place for that happening. Do you think that's the sort of thing that could happen here in Cameroon? Do you think this anglophone conflict could pull in other countries? It's it's uh, it's hard to know. This is
1: a yeah. Um, what happened? What some One thing happened, which was that a bunch of uh, leaders, Anglophone leaders, were meeting in Nigeria and then got arrested and were then extradited uh, uh, illegally. A lot of people, uh, analysts say that was an illegal move to Cameroon and then were held for, I think, three months or close to that uh, without access to lawyers, without access to the families. A lot of people, including me, thought they were dead. Uh, apparently they're not dead but uh, they're still in prison not being charged and so on so that's that's the main kind of cross border thing that has happened so far I can't see this specific conflict uh, you know spilling into Nigeria I don't really see it happen weapons perhaps though no
0: they could maybe be getting weapons from there or something
1: Uh, yeah yeah for sure I mean this seems like the most likely place they would be getting uh, weapons from. Is there
0: anything else, you know, you want to say about this, this conflict and Cameroon in general that you think, you know, people should know? Well, I think overall,
1: this is, to me, this is a conflict that is going to last for a long time because the uh, Ambazonians or the separatists are not going to be able to win against government forces I have much better guns and, and external support. On the other hand, the state is forces. The state forces are unlikely to win because these guys know the area really well, and they they'll always be able to hide in some you know uh, uh, forest or valleys and so on. And so it's the, the geography of that whole region is pretty much perfect for for warfare. The terrain, it's like
0: jungles and stuff, right?
1: Yeah. So part of it, so the southern part is. Uh, rainforest And and Sick rainforest Where A lot of the time You can't see More than 10 meters In uh, Part of it is actually uh, Of that uh, Some parts of it Are uh, National park And you know People will still hunt The, the eco guards Can't do much Because these guys Know the area Like their pocket And They They um, they they can hide very easily. So obviously the army is going to be in the same situation. And the northern part is uh, grasslands with loads of hills and little valleys and cove, And it's very easy to get lost and it's very easy to hide in there. So I I don't think... And they have a very strong support as as much as I could see of, of the local population. Yeah, what, what is the support like? So the fighters were part of that community, <laughs> basically, because they're all Anglophones and a and, and lot of them... Uh, uh, fight in their own area where they used to live, um, so so they are part of that community. And and the feeling I've had being with them and being with different communities, is people are very welcoming of them. Uh, and of course, you know, you show up with a gun and stuff. People are not going to turn you down necessarily. Although these are like hunting rifles, so people just go hunting. You know, every grandfather, who's you know has a bit of money, probably has a hunting rifle. So it's not like unusual. But people seem to be quite happy when they see them overall. Uh, so so I do think they have quite a lot of local support. And and throughout a lot of the Anglophone people I've known for a long time, even the very mild ones, you know, the kind of almost accountant types that I know are very much in favor of um, secession and independence. Uh, I'm not saying that's everyone, but it does feel like in my circle, at least, it's... it's um, a lot of the people, they do have
0: popular support. It seems.
1: Yeah, they do. And so, one thing to uh, to keep an eye out for is elections on on seventh uh, October. The president incumbent, President Bia, is is almost guaranteed to be reelected. Uh, but what is is to look out for is you know what's going to happen in those regions, and also. You know, are other regions gonna um, uh, take a model on that and think, you know, maybe we should also kick the state out of our region. I don't know how likely that is, though.
0: That is a good point, though, because that could very easily start to undo the country. You know, like you said, there is over a hundred different languages spoken in Cameroon, which you probably each one has its own culture in, in some ways. If they see what the anglophone guys are doing, you, you're right. You know, people might go hmm, yeah, we don't like what, how we're being treated either. Like, you know, before you know it, you got chaos. Uh,
1: yeah, that, that is quite possible. I mean, there's a bunch of things that made it happen, I think, in the Anglophone area, including that language thing. So the fact that the state is, is Francophone and they're mostly Anglophone. Um, but, and also having very strong uh, elites abroad and a history of contestation. Which you don't find in the other regions. Uh, that uh, that hasn't been the case. Some some um, people uh, argue that uh, Boko Haram is is an example of an armed group that has uh, support in Cameroon by uh, people who are seeking to gain more power, but more in a cynical way, the, where I've understood it. Uh, I don't know if that's true, but that, that's been argued. So so that would actually, you know, be a predecessor in some ways. Um, and the other thing to take into account is that, uh, you know, um, the president is 85 now. And obviously that's quite old and, um, you know, he's not going to be around forever. So one question that everyone is asking, what happens when he dies? Um who's going to take over. And he's been very effective at making sure that there's no one uh, really sticking out
0: uh, uh, who could be a a logical uh, successor to him. Right. He's made sure no one can kind of get him killed and then take over or have a coup or something. Yeah. Legally, according to the Constitution, it's
1: the president of the Senate that is supposed to take over the president in case the president dies. The Senate was... I think, planned in the constitution like several decades ago, if I remember correctly. But uh, the president of Senate has... Oh, the Senate itself uh, has actually been created quite recently. And the president, I think, nominates... Is it like a half or something like that of the senators? And the other half get voted. So, obviously, he's got like a massive majority in the Senate, which he would have even if he didn't uh, n- uh, name everyone. But... Uh So he basically gets to pick uh the president of the Senate. And the guy he picked is basically someone everyone knows. You know, even if legally speaking, he's supposed to be the successor. He's never going to be practically speaking a successor to him. So that guy is just a guy that doesn't have much of a network. And if he does, he probably get arrested on corruption charges like a lot of the other people who've kind of
0: stuck out a little bit. I think the work you've been doing there is really important as well because there's kind of a bit of an oversaturation with, you know, I mean, all, all these conflicts need covering, but people do tend to flock to the more headline grabbing ones. I think that's, I think it's great that you've been there and, you know, covered this. Um, with that in mind, where can people most easily get hold of the work you've done there uh, with the, uh, the Anglophone conflict?
1: Yeah, thanks. Uh, so um, you can read my two articles on IRIN, uh, the website, which is irinnews.org, news uh, dot org. Or you can also follow me on Twitter, Emmanuel Freudenthal, if you look me up. I think I'm pretty much the only guy with that name around spell that mate spell that (laughs) (laughs) so I know everyone's gonna get it wrong because it always happens to me when I have to spell my name for a card or something but it's F-R-E-U-D-E-N-T-H-A-L and uh, basically I think if you type it like close enough in the
0: manual you should be able to find me thank you very much mate that was excellent thank you That was Emmanuel talking about the conflict in East Cameroon between the Anglophone-speaking Ambazonians and the French-speaking state forces. This episode was sponsored by DefencePost.com. There's an interview I did with them up on their website right now as well. Check that out if you want. It's mostly about Popular Front. This episode is also sponsored by Actung Cthulhu Tactics, which is a video game coming out. And it's based on this story they've created where the Nazis in World War II had this split and they're fighting each other. And they're using occult magic and all of this weird Cthulhu, H.P. Lovecraft kind of stuff. I thought it looked cool. Um, So I thought, yeah, yeah, you guys can sponsor an episode of the podcast. So check those guys out. They're also doing a podcast about the whole thing, which is aurochdigital.com slash podcast. Uh, That is o c h. D-I-G-I-T-A-L dot com slash podcast. If people do want to sponsor an episode, get in contact at popularfrontpodcast at gmail.com. The rule is if I think it looks good, if I like the look of it and I think that listeners would maybe like the look of it, then cool. You can sponsor the podcast, no problem. As usual, uh, for all bonus content, go to patreon.com slash front. Like I always say, for the price of literally one shit coffee a month, you can get bonus episodes, all sorts of different content. There's narrated popular front articles. Um, You can also get involved with the collaboration process in terms of what I'm gonna be doing in the future with videos. And also, if you sign up for the highest tier, you get free merchandise when it comes through. Uh, I just sent off the first batch of Popular Front stickers to all of those lot. So, yeah, if you want to support Popular Front, go to patreon.com slash popularfront. And thank you very much to all the highest tier backers. That is Ryan Sandercock, Stephen Adi Henderson, Cole Gannon, Joel Tambusi, LH, Jittel, Zachary Hinch. Aliame Leroy, Daniel Shearer, Joanne Stocker, Margaret Bowling and Teddy. Um, There are a lot of people now seem to be getting involved on the Patreon which I'm really thankful for so thanks very much. Having these backers on Patreon has allowed us to put some money into making the first Popular Front documentary which has basically been filmed now and is waiting to be edited. It's about the Irish Republican youth in the Bogside in Derry in Northern Ireland. The access we got was very good and no doubt it will be quite controversial when it comes out. Anyway, if you want to watch that documentary when it comes out, go to youtube.com slash Please subscribe and you also apparently have to hit the notification bell because YouTube is just this hellish platform that never works properly otherwise. Um, so please do that. For all things Popular Front, follow us on Twitter at PopularFrontCO. Uh, or follow my Twitter, that's Jake underscore Hanrahan, H-A-N-R-A-H-A-N. We have an Instagram account as well, apparently, that is at popular.front. Um, some people have been saying no, I should start a Facebook page, so people can like it on Facebook. No, we're not doing that because I hate Facebook, I hate everything Zuckerberg has kind of done and stands for um blah 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 whatever who cares but yeah i mean i'm not doing a facebook for popular front but on all those other platforms you can get hold of it um music in this episode the intro is by home and the outro music is by an artist called kill miami to stay fully updated with popular front go to popularfront.co